right, and we are live. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Foreign and Domestic Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, Ramon Mile, and whoo, folks, the swag is in. We teased it. We teased it, uh, I believe, yeah, last, uh, last episode. Um, we, we've had some for a while, but we, we were still working on sourcing, but um, we're still not 100% there yet. We're not sure whether we're going to do e-commerce or just do something uh, where, you know, we can send it to you or give it to you personally. We're still working that stuff out, but I mean, it's sweet. Check these out, man. These look great. The, you know, the big white logo, you know, the white logo with the nice colors popping off that black tee. Woo! It's real fresh, man. Real fresh. Some some select supporters already got some. They got them, uh, you know, a little earlier, a little ahead of time. But uh, we're going to have that set up here in the future. So, like I said, make sure you hit the page. Just leave us a comment. You can do it on this video or anywhere on the page if you're interested. We're going to try to do t-shirts, hoodies, the whole shebang, okay? All right. So, now for today's episode... Um, Today, we're going to cover the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, um, as well as the $1.2 trillion um, bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, and some of the recent news around both. Um, and then we'll dive into what I think is an important New York Times opinion piece written by one of the country's top economics professors uh, at Harvard. Uh, and it sort of connects to this huge economic shift we may very well see from the aforementioned legislation. Um, and after that, we actually have some breaking news surrounding the recent FDA vaccination recommendations that literally just dropped like 30 minutes before I went live. Um, I'm going to touch on some of those because I think it's important and it connects to a lot of the things that we discussed on the show. Um, and yeah, it's literally the most important thing going on in the world. I know a lot of people don't like talking about coronavirus or vaccines or anything like that, but I mean, it's literally uh, th this whole pandemic is shaping our world around us, whether people want to admit it or not. So I am going to cover it. Uh, so anyone who's listened to the show for the last few months already knows that much of the plans that were initially laid out for these infrastructure legislations, uh, it, uh, both of them, it, it has changed over time. You've heard me and Patter lament, uh, you know, get upset, rage, have hope in the beginning, all of this. And it's, it's sort of just over time, it's just built up the complexity of itself, like on top of an already Byzantine process, like for its actual passage in Congress. So I'm going to try to break it down a little more simply as than we have in the past, both from a political strategy perspective and a fiscal one. So um, the huge scope of it all can be intimidating, but it's extremely important. Uh, you know, the ramifications should be understood by every American because if it passes, it will it'll touch each and every one of our lives, uh, whether you're poor or rich or anywhere in between. So to begin laying this out, there are two foundational planks to understand. Um, so we're going to begin with the one point two trillion dollar hard infrastructure bill. Now, we call it hard infrastructure because it fits directly within the traditional concepts of what infrastructure spending used to be in the past by providing funding for construction and repair of roads, bridges, modernization of public transit, uh, upgrades to airports, seaports, the electrical grid, water systems, and expansion of nationwide broadband is actually in this as well. So this hard infrastructure bill, it passed the Senate with a wide bipartisan majority, uh, 69 to 30, uh, I believe it was a little over, no, yeah, about, yeah, a little over a month ago, and they had 19 Republican votes, so that's in the books, that's knocked out, right, that's gonna get passed, all we're waiting on is for the House to do it, but this is where we're gonna get into the next layer of complexity with that, um, but before we get to that passage, where we also have to flesh out the second plank here, the $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill, um, 
Now, as we've explained in previous episodes, it, this is a reconciliation bill. So it's not your typical, oh, you know, it needs to pass through Congress and uh, Republicans can block it. No, this is the reconciliation process, which is it's a process by which Congress can pass legislation by simple majority in the Senate if if it makes any changes to spending, revenue, uh, uh, revenues, or the federal debt limit. So this process is necessary because Republicans have opposed the spending and funding methods for this legislation the entire time and it haven't moved. So there's no bipartisanship to be had. Now, uh, like I said, it's often referred to as the human infrastructure bill. This reconciliation package includes uh, a ton of, you know, good spending for the working class. Uh, I'm going to touch on some of it here. So it includes universal pre-K for three and four-year-olds. Uh, so the way that that would work is the federal government would be paying 75% of the cost of that. States would pick up 25%. Um, I believe that's in, in the, again, this is all subject to change, but it's going to be in the years afterward. But initially the federal government will fund it outright. Um, it will, uh, this package also contains the continuation of the refundable, uh, expanded child tax credit. Those are the checks that you've been getting every month. Uh, if you have children and have a household income below, I believe it's 150,000, um, you know, uh, p folks who have been getting those, um, you know, and granted, you know, I'll admit, yeah, some people might not need it, uh, that, that are at some of those income levels that, you know, just breaking six figures in a household. But, uh, again, the entire point, uh, a big theme of what we're going to be talking about here as far as not only just the economic impact, what the fiscal uh, trade-offs are from the, you know, boosting the economy in its time of need, like it, you know, it's clearly been in need for quite some time now, but also the political um, calculations and ramifications of making things more universal, right? Not just means tested for people who, you know, say make $60,000 or less in a household, you know, the way that, or, you know, what is the cutoff for WIC? I think it's like, you know, 30 something or 40, it depends on how many kids you have, but raising that bar, I will get into it more later in, when we get to that opinion piece in the New York times, but it is important, um, politically in my opinion. Uh, so uh, to continue on with what's inside of the reconciliation package, um, it also has a child care subsidy locking in the cost of child care for children under five at no more than 7% of your household income. So that is huge. And this is an issue in this reconciliation package that you actually saw some capitulation from some Republicans on because, again, super basic. What was the big issue we had with our economy here? This, you know, labor shortage that we experienced. It was an artificial labor shortage. People would have worked if they could, a lot of them. Sure, some people were on unemployment. It was more money than they'd ever made in their lives. And we've gone into all the psychological reasons in previous episodes of this show. Uh, you know, what led to some people to just not go back, not hating those jobs, uh, experiencing freedom for like the first time in their lives, 40-something-year-old people. Um, yeah, not surprising. But there is a significant portion of people, you know, and I've experienced some of this in my own household where it's like, hey, it, it childcare costs so much money. It, it's basically just a wash. Like, okay, I'm going to go work just to pay for childcare. It's insane the, the how much this stuff costs. And if you can't manipulate you and your partner, or if it's just you in your house, if you can't manipulate your work schedule to fit perfectly within that, which is already a Herculean task, because this is America. We just, it's 24 hours. There's a, a, a ton of places like manufacturing, warehousing, you know, jobs that pay pretty good are 24 hour operations. So unless you've been there for a long time, have great, uh, you know, credentials, all these other things, the chances of you getting the shift you want is even difficult when you're making good money. So this is important. 
it caps the cost of childcare at no more than 7% of household income. Now, this is another one of those universal concepts. Uh, I believe that the, the cutoff for the, um, to, in order to get the set, the, the subsidy that locks it in at that rate is, um, it's $200,000. I have to actually, um, I'm going to, I'll go back, I'll circle back and check on that. I will add it into the show notes on, cause I didn't write it in my notes here, but I'm, I'm sure it's pretty high. Um, but you know, even people who live in New York city that make decent money, um, you know, folks that live in the suburbs by me and Niskayuna, stuff like that. Like, unless you have two extremely high earners in your household, it really doesn't make sense to pay this crazy cost for what childcare is. If you can just stay home and then, you know, a lot of pe- people think one man or woman, they can do a better job raising their child. And if you have this crisis in your labor force and your labor market, I should say, where you're worried like, oh, not enough people are, then you gotta, you gotta provide childcare somehow. You, you as a government need to work on that because bitching and moaning and trying to make people feel bad or calling them names in the media and all this shit that we've watched for the last year, that's not going to, that's not going to touch people. That's not going to affect anyone because if, if this last year and a half has shown us anything, a lot of people, people are going to put their families over anything, which you should. But, um, yeah, if, if there isn't any reason for people to have a, a decent enough trade-off where it actually makes sense for them financially to en- re-enter the labor labor market without having some some sort of affordable childcare. It wasn't going to happen. So this is very important, especially with the economy. You know what its predictions are. Uh, just coming out of some pretty bad inflation for a temporary inflation for a little while. It's definitely something that's needed needs to be done. So also within this package, there is two years of free community college. Uh, <laughs> Great. Should have been done a long time ago. I'd like to see trade schools included in that. But hey, you know, beggars can't be choosers. This is still a great package. Um, we got $1,400 boost to Pell Grants, which again, I'm not really a fan of that because a lot of that's mean tested as well. But again, it's more money's good. Uh, the creation of a nationwide paid and medical leave program, giving workers a total of 12 weeks of guaranteed paid parental, family, and personal illness slash safe leave by the 10th year of the program. So this hasn't been fleshed out. This is actually the most interesting thing in this for me, because this is sort of, this is on the level of social security, right? When the country, not, not the benefits, but the monumentality of it all. When social security was introduced in America, people loved it. Um, how couldn't you? It, it was great. It was a safety net for normal working people to not have to worry about being absolutely destitute if, you know, you're old and can't work anymore. Now, this sort of does the same thing, but for people that are in the workforce, there's a lot of state, and I know I'm in New York, we're spoiled, we already have this, right? But there's a lot of states that don't. And it's very important. Um, You know, not only is this for uh, parental leave, uh, it, it can be maternity leave for states that don't guarantee it already, which are the majority of states don't, or even corporations that won't do it because the states don't require them to do it. This is massive right here. Um, t- up to 12 weeks at the 10th year of the program, I'm not really a big fan of. It's probably going to be similar to how anyone who lives in New York, how we passed our minimum wage laws and it raises every year. It's probably going to start off somewhere at, you know, four weeks or five weeks and go up a week every year until it hits 12 weeks at the 10th year of the program. Not really a huge fan at, you know, kicking the can down the road. It leaves it pretty vulnerable um, to political dissuasion when you don't just come right out you know, I do it in three years or something. I wouldn't say just mandate 12 weeks and companies just have to eat that uh, because there really isn't much uh, specificity in this. Because again, this is just a general budget resolution type outline of all of this I'm reading. There is no um, 
the funding mechanisms aren't exact other than how the, the, what the taxes will be to raise the revenue for it. But typically when you have these type of paid leave programs, um, there's some sort of a, a, a contribution, just like how you contribute to Social Security with payroll taxes. So we're going to have to see how that flushes out over time. But either way, the general scope and idea of it, it's a, it's extremely needed in America. It's unacceptable that we're this wealthy of a country. There's people who work 40 hours a week or plus um, for giant corporations and have basically no leave. Uh, you know, people having like a week or two of sick time is just completely unacceptable. So continuing on, the reconciliation bill also... Uh, brings the addition of dental, vision, and hearing coverage for Medicare, as well as lowering the eligibility age. Now, mind you, 24 million beneficiaries of Medicare, which is over half, more than half of Medicare recipients, did not have dental coverage last year. Doesn't make any sense. We're going to fix that. This is something big. This is something big that Bernie Sanders pushed. He was talking about this on the campaign trail in 2020. This was one of his conditions with Joe Biden when he conceded, actually, was that the Medicare age was going to get lowered to some degree. This is why you've seen, and me and Pat are touched on this on previous episodes, uh, a previous episode, where there was, you know, he read an article where there was some discontent on the left about, you know, Bernie's didn't do enough, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But, you know, he lost. And him trying to get... Uh, uh, um, you know, make deals on the side here and get what he can for his agenda while at the same time still having quite a bit of power still in Congress is good. This is, you know, if we're not going to get Medicare for all now, this is what needs to be done. Lowering the Medicare age, uh, I don't really think who's going to complain. You know what I mean? If you, if you lower the Medicare age to 55, what person's going to be upset by that? Because the thing is you don't have to take it, right? But it's there for people who might need it. You never know what's going to happen. We just went through one of the the largest shock to the um to the labor market in this country in decades. Now, being able to be on Medicare if you're a person who's older in the workforce is surely a nice pivot. You know what I mean? Uh, much better than having to deal with all the nonsense around, uh, you know, fucking Cobra, all this shit that happens when you get laid off. Boom, you roll right on Medicare, no problem. Don't even have to worry about income eligibility and all this bullshit around Medicaid. Anything you qualify. So now, um. Also, the other part of it that I'm not really a big fan of in the medical section of all this is enhanced Affordable Care Act subsidies. Yes, I, I know it's gross. You know, most people don't like the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, but obviously this is a compromise for lowering the Medicare age eligibility. I'll take it. Uh, the Affordable Care Act is one of Nancy Pelosi's babies. You know what I mean? She still has quite a bit of power in Congress. I guarantee you this came from her and her people because the Affordable Care Act is their Magna Carta. That's their that's that's her. That's what she considers anyway, her life's work as far as, you know, her coming into Congress, being a healthcare advocate. That's what they think their solution is. It wasn't one. It was a tiny Band-Aid that barely stopped the bleeding. Um, and they're just going to continue to try to beef it up rather than scrapping it and doing Medicare for all for some reason. But we all know what that, why that is. But um, now, finally, on the medical part, uh, this also calls for lowering the price of prescription drugs, including negotiation of Medicare drug prices extremely important. It's estimated to save hundreds of billions of dollars over the, over the course of 10 years. Um, and it also gives some funding for veterans hospitals, affordable housing, and green energy initiatives and subsidies. Now, those aren't very specific, actually. We're going to have to see more fleshing out once Schumer uh, finally gets all of the language out of the committee, the relevant Senate committees uh, that, that uh, are building language relevant to their committee for this bill. So we'll have more. But um, 
you know, and like I said before, mind you, any part of this is liable to be added onto, amended, reduced, or completely removed at any time during these following weeks uh, of the finalization of the bill. And several things already have been, you know, uh, we talked about it, uh, all the elder care. There was a ton of uh, like special needs care, like straight up just the government pumping money directly into creation of new programs to, uh, you know, for people to, for example, have the option of staying home and, you know, poor families or working class families, people, if you want your, you don't have enough money to send your mom or dad to a nice home. Typically what would happen is you had to burn through all of their money first that they'd qualify for Medicaid or, or medic, uh, you know, a certain kind of Medicare that allows them to go into a home. What this would have done would have done because it got scrubbed disgustingly. Uh, we just, we talk all this shit in this country about taking care of our elders. No one means it at all. This was $400 billion that would have gone towards families allowing, uh, having the the ability to hire a home health aid, you know, like what my, that's what my mother does. She does home health care work. Um, you know, every family I speak to, they prefer it. It's safer for them. They, their, their, their mother or father gets more attention uh, and it keeps the family more uh, cohesive. You know what I mean? Especially when people have issues like Alzheimer's and things like that. You know, it's, I've worked in some of those wards and it's, it's sad to see, you know, their grandma, grandfather around all those people. They don't know them. Granted, to be fair, they probably don't remember you either, but, or they eventually don't, but you know, it's just one of those things where I'm, I'm actually surprised that Biden didn't even make any noise uh, about that being removed because I, you know, he seems to really care a lot about those kinds of issues. And I think genuinely, you know, um, but Hey, maybe he got something else he wanted more. Who knows? But uh, so, yeah, so this is a giant overhaul of of real life expenses that working class families shell out huge portions of their income to every year. And this will be paid for by increasing taxes on corporations and individuals that make four hundred thousand a year or more through raising taxes on the top tax bracket, raising capital gains and other investments. Oh, excuse me. Now, I didn't quote the numbers there because, again, those have been moving all over the place. It's not really relevant. Um, Trump cut the corporate tax rate when he came in. Biden originally negotiated to raise back up to half of to meet the halfway point between Trump's cut and where it used to be. It's moved all over the place. Not even going to bother you with it because those numbers aren't going to be what's in it. So we should be expecting a draft of this reconciliation bill once all those committees finish up, like I said before. But so but but here's the important part, right? Here's the rub. Um, now progressives in the house are holding strong to their threat that until the Senate finalizes the reconciliation, the, the human infrastructure bill might remember the Senate already passed the hard infrastructure, the 1.2 trillion for roads, bridges, etc. The house is still sticking to the, uh, you know, their threat that they will not pass the hard infrastructure bill until the reconciliation bill comes out of the Senate as well, because that is where all the pressure is, right? Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema. Anyone who's been tuning in, you know these things. It puts pressure on Schumer to whip his caucus into shape and get the 50 votes and clear it. You're not going to get any Republicans probably cross the line on this, even, uh, you know, like a Mitt Romney or someone. Even if he likes some pieces in it, he's really only going to be there to serve to try to whittle it down. And at this point, like Bernie's been saying for the last, I don't know, six weeks, what you know, Manchin putting out op-eds talking about $1 trillion, $1.5 for the human infrastructure. You know, I'll do that. Bernie's straight up like, no, 3.5 is the compromise. And he's correct because anyone who was paying attention to this from the very beginning, we were talking about, Joe Biden was talking about six, seven trillion dollars, folks. Okay. We're at 1.2 for the hard infrastructure and 3.5 right now for this one. Okay. We're not even touching five. This shit is a compromise already. And 
you know, like I said, progressives are framing it in the correct way. Like people trying to bring up like, oh, well, the other one, no, the other bill has nothing to do with, that's a separate bill. You know what I mean? It doesn't, we're, we're not doing all this and I love it. They're, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mondaire Jones, uh, a couple, a bunch of justice Democrats have been very vocal about this in the house as well, mind you, uh, you know, threatening Pelosi saying like, yeah, I, I'm not going to pass shit. You better, you know, reach up to the Senate, talk to Schumer, be like, yo, figure it out or we're not going to do anything. And I think that's completely the right play. Because again, this isn't a showdown between Republicans and Democrats at this point. This is all intra-party shit with blue dog Democrats, conservative Democrats, even a lot of moderate Democrats trying to push back against what the American people have overwhelmingly been asking for for years now. You know, tax the rich, um, you know, make the economy more fair. That's why Biden keeps saying that over and over again. He understands this shit. You know what I mean? Scranton, Pennsylvania guy, he knows. Granted, he hasn't been there in a long time, but he fashions himself as, you know, a Oh, I represent the working class. And so far, you have to give him credit. He is at least messaging that way. He's the first president in a long time to talk about labor and unions often and loudly and positively and not wishy-washy. Um, you know, he's championing a lot of this stuff. So give credit where it's due and we'll see where this goes. But I think we are in a good place with this because honestly, all the leverage is on the side of the progressives right now, where as it stands right now, you know, unless... Unless Joe Manchin is, um, you know, really willing to go down with this ship here. But the problem is he's not up for election. So we'll see how it goes. Um, uh, I have I have a, a decent degree of confidence. So what we got here um, now. The important thing um, to understand about sort of how these negotiations have been going is. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer both understand that if this doesn't pass, you know, it spells certain doom for Democrats' chances in 2022 in the midterms. And Biden's definitely looking for a win after, um, you know, his approval ratings absolutely tanked uh, since the Afghanistan withdrawal and the recent COVID surge. You know, all this blame's falling at his feet. Some of it fairly, some of it not. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, uh, when you're talking about electoralism, it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's whoever spins it best wins, and they're not spinning well right now. Now, this hasn't stopped though. Big Pharma and other corporate giants from lobbying against this uh, reconciliation bill, and um, you know, it hasn't stopped them from lobbying against it. And then they roll out their minions, their bootlickers, their institutionalists. Um, you know, they send them out in the media to sow skepticism and disbelief around uh, you know, all of these great programs that I just listed. Uh, and subsidies. Now, and as I always preface these media analysis segments with, because we're about to roll into this opinion piece for the Times, um, I always preface it with, it's important to understand this this vector of politics, right? Like, like, because as much as you may know that what a lot of these centrists and, you know, uh, uh, you know, well, Keynesian economists that, you know, this guy fashions himself as, as much as you may know that this is propaganda or just intentional poo-pooing of things that American people want. You know, remember Hillary Clinton, you know, talk, calling Medicare for all, you know, uh, fairy dust and pixies or whatever the fuck she said. Um, no, you got to realize is that most of our politicians take these people very seriously, you know, as do most of the people in the upper echelon of our news media. So I'd like to highlight the absurdity of one such minion of the establishment in the pages of the New York Times here. 
This is an essay from one Nicholas Gregory Mankiw. He is a Harvard economics professor, uh, one of the top ones in the country, actually, and the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George Bush. Now, he begins with, uh, the, it's titled, quote, can America afford to become a major social welfare state? That's what he thinks this bill is, is a major, major social welfare state. So he begins with, quote, in the reconciliation package now being debated in Washington, President Biden and many congressional Democrats aim to expand the size and scope of government substantially. Americans should be wary of their plans, not only because of the sizable budgetary cost, but also because of the broader risks to economic prosperity. Okay, let's see where he's going with this. He continues, quote, the details of the ambitious $3.5 trillion social spending bill are still being discussed, so it's unclear what will end up what it will end up including. In many ways, it seems like a grab bag of initiatives assembled from the progressive wish list. Yeah, that, yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, because progressives have popular policy. Sure. He continues, and it may be bigger than it sounds. Reports suggest that some provisions will arbitrarily lapse before the end of the 10-year budget window to reduce the bill's ostensible size even though lawmakers hope to extend these policies at a later date. Now, this is important, right? So what he's saying is the package might be bigger because even though a lot of some of the provisions last 10 years, because this is, you know, this is all this whole reconciliation bill is framed around the program, some of them being 10 years long, because a lot of the taxes that they're talking about uh, adding in uh, high raising capital gains, corporate taxes are also framed uh, you know, how much the government will recoup across a 10 year period. Now, the reason this is disingenuous is, yeah, they did uh, set some of these programs to lapse, not arbitrarily, like what he said, they set them to lapse because everyone in Congress understands that every four years you get a new president, right? Uh, <laughs> roughly every four years, someone fucks with the tax code and changes shit. So, why would you try to build up too big of a program right now around something if the whole point of what Manchin and Cinema and all these centers are saying is, oh, it has to be paid for? Okay, so by definition, because of the moderates, you cannot write, say, for example, a child tax credit bill that's fully refundable for the next 10 years. You can't do that because they won't let you. But look how he frames it. He tries to frame it as, oh, it's the progressives being sneaky. No, it's literally the only way they can get it done because people like you and Manchin won't let them. So we continue. Um, he, he continues, people of all ages are in line to get something. Government funded pre-K for three and four year olds, expanded child tax credits for families with children, two years of tuition free community college, increased Pell Grants for other college students, enhanced health insurance subsidies, paid family and medical leave, and expansions in Medicare for older Americans. A recent Times headline aptly described their plan's coverage as cradle to grave, uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Did anything I just read sound bad to anyone? Did that, did, did any of that sound wrong? Um, uh, government funded pre-K, not government run. Like you can still go to your kid's pre-K, you know what I mean? But like you make $60,000 a year and your kid's pre-K or their daycare either or costs like, you know, for eight grand a year or who knows? I don't even know what it costs uh, now, but does that sound good? Do you, do you think that you make enough money where... You're like, no, I'm, I'm not going to take the government subsidy. I want to just pay for it anyway. Or do you think it's a good idea that, you know, we offer pre-K uh, fully subsidized for every three and four year old in this country to go in? Because all of the science uh, worldwide shows that kids that go to pre-K 
at least for one year, but even better for two years, have a better experience in school. They have a higher graduation rate. They have a higher literacy rate. All of these things. So again, he wants to frame it around, ooh, it's a giveaway. It's for the people. No, it's for the kids. It's for the kids. Because some people just literally can't afford it. So this is going to be the highlight of what I'm hitting at with this article. How insane this man's perspective is. How insane a lot of people who agree with his line of thinking on many of these subjects he's he's talking about it from he's he's talking about all this from the uh, from the framing of oh well you're just uh you're gonna make these people lazy because they won't have to like pay for their kids to have school lunch or go to daycare no some of these people are just working all the time and still can't afford those things so what are you gonna do are you just gonna be like yeah i don't want any of these kids to ever go to pre-k if their parents can't afford it as if that's somehow a negative it's ridiculous on its face um you know again all these Team America, we're the number one. Okay, do you actually want to be number one? Do you want our kids to do better and feel better and be better people? Do you want that or not? Um, but so he continues. Two years of free community college, increased Pell Grants for college students, enhanced health insurance. Oh, I read this part. I'm sorry. Continue. Uh, the next paragraph. He says, if there's a common theme, it is that when you need uh, when you need a helping hand, the government will be there for you. It aims to assist people who are struggling in our rough and tumble market economy. On its face, that instinct doesn't sound bad. Many Western European nations have more generous social safety nets than the United States, and the Biden plan takes a big step in that direction. So at least he's being honest, saying like, yeah, this isn't going to put us on par by at all with the majority of European countries. It just takes a step towards it. So at least he's being honest there. But let's let's see. What's his angle here? He continues. Can the United States afford to embrace a large welfare state? From a narrow budgetary standpoint, the answer is yes. But the policy also raises larger questions about American values and aspirations and what kind of nation we want to be. Okay, so right there. This right here in a nutshell is why I highlighted this uh, opinion article. Now, can the United States afford to embrace a larger welfare state? He says, from a budgetary standpoint, the answer is yes. Okay, so, so mind you guys, this is one of the top economists in the country at Harvard. He's saying, yeah, we can afford it. Okay, so that's it. That was the only argument that and that the, that centrists and conservatives, whether in Democratic Party or the Republican Party, continually tried to launch against Bernie and his kind and his policies for the last five years. How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? You're admitting right now we can pay for it. Okay, so that's it. There is no more. What the fuck are we talking about? Uh, quote, it also it raises questions about American values and what kind of country do you want to be? What does that even mean? What does that mean? Because, again, all the same people who bitch about, oh, crime is high. Oh, there's so many poor children uh, in this country. And, oh, don't, wouldn't it be great if we could do something about that? This is doing something about that. So which one is it? What do you mean? You're, like, making a cultural argument about economics right now. That doesn't even make any sense. You're, you're admitting you're seeding the ground that the economics are possible on this. That it's, it's, it's fine. Yeah, sure. We'll be okay. What does American values even mean? Because here's the problem. I, that's why I don't talk. You don't hear serious people in politics talk about that. American values. What does that even mean anymore? It doesn't mean anything anymore. Because as far as I can see, the only thing American values, like the actual hegemonic opinion between regardless of which side of the aisle you fall on in this country in politics, the only American values I've ever seen anyone unifying around is war and destruction. So what values 
are we talking about here? Because anyone who's coming from a, a, a specific bias and arguing for or against a certain policy and brings up values, that's just a replacement word for, oh, I just, I don't like uh, what it's going to make us seem like or like how it makes me feel about the people who are going to get or have something taken from them. Okay, but that's not what we're talking, that's, that's not what policy is about, right? And this is the main issue I have with, you know, a lot of the talking points from the right. Like everybody tries to use this and I, I'm not saying this guy, I mean, he literally is a Republican. He worked for George Bush by definition. He's a Republican, uh, but at least, uh, ideologically, I don't know about like literally how he votes, but, um, yeah, it's just, it really blows my mind because it's like, what are we talking about here? We're crafting policy. Are we trying to reach a goal? Are we trying to fix or change something? Or are we just doing policy so that like we can like go home and be like, oh, oh yes, I I was in Congress and uh, I would have made Ayn Rand proud today. Like, is that what we're doing this shit for? Is that because you can't be that can't be what they mean, right? I mean, it can't. Let's find out. Let's continue. He goes on. The Biden administration has promised to pay for the entire plan with higher taxes on corporations and the very wealthy. But there's good reason to doubt that claim. Why? Yeah. <laughs> budget experts such as Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for Responsible Federal Tax Budget, a Republican, are skeptical that the government can raise enough tax revenue from the wealthy to finance Mr. Biden's ambitious agenda. Now, he continues, the United States could do what Western Europe does, impose higher taxes on everyone. Most countries use a value-added tax, a form of national sales tax, to raise a lot of revenue efficiently. If Americans really want a larger government, we'll have to pay for it. And a VAT tax could be the best way. No, that's what you think, man. No one, this is what I mean, right? Look at the crazy, this isn't even framing. Like, this is literally just like, uh, whoa, look over here. Don't pay attention to what's actually happening. This guy's bringing up a VAT tax, a value-added tax. No one said those words in our politics literally since I think Andrew Yang ran for president. I haven't heard anyone say that. What are you even bringing this up for? This is like this guy trying to like, like, go big brain on us and be like, oh, well, most countries use a value added tax to pay for their social programs. So like, we'll probably end up having to do that. No, we won't. No, no, we won't. We literally won't because Republicans certainly won't go for that. And Democrats aren't interested in them. They understand that that's, that's keen, that's Keynesian bullshit. The majority, the majority of progressives right now are post Keynesian. They're post Keynesian. Most of them are operating from a modern monetary theory perspective. They're not talking about fucking VAT taxes. The only type of VAT tax Democrats have even whispered about, which isn't going to happen as well. The only, the closest thing to one that they've even whispered about in the last three years was a carbon tax. Okay. But that's a whole nother ball of yarn. We won't get into it, but just again, a complete straw man, this guy's building up right now. Like the, the, the straw man's gigantic, but he's going to keep building. He continues, quote, the costs of an expanded welfare state, however, extend beyond those reported in the budget. There are also broader economic effects. Arthur Okun, the former economic advisor to President Lyndon Johnson, addressed this timeless issue in his 1975 book, Equality and Efficiency, The Big Trade-Off. According to Mr. Okun, policymakers uh, policy want to maximize the economic pie while slicing it equally. These goals often conflict. That's a complete misrepresentation. No one is trying to slice any pie equally. Literally, this legislation is aimed at so people are not destitute, children can eat and like have better education, like pre pre K through five education and old people don't have to like live destitute uh, and horrible st stacked up on each other in buildings away from their fit. That is 
a ridiculous framing of all of this. It really is. It's disgusting. Um, but he continues, these goals often conflict as policymakers attempt to rectify the market's outcome by equalizing the slices, the pie tends to shrink. Now, get a load of this metaphor, because I love this. This is, whew, he continues, Mr. Okun explains the trade-off with a metaphor. Providing a social safety net is like using a leaky bucket to redistribute water among people with different amounts. While bringing water to the thirstiest may be a noble task, it is also costly as some water is lost in transit. Oh, the water, the precious water is lost. Oh, man. He continues, in the real world, this leakage occurs because higher taxes distort incentives and impede economic growth. And those taxes aren't just the explicit ones that finance benefits, such as public education or healthcare. They also include implicit taxes baked, baked into, the, uh, into the benefits themselves. If these benefits decline when your income rises, people are discouraged from working. No, that's literally not proven at all. If your benefits decline while your income rises, people are not discouraged from working. Um, you want to know why? because people are still going to like take a better job if they can. If what he's talking about right now is, oh, people who make around $24,000 a year, um, if they get like, I don't know, a dollar raise at work, they'll like quit their job and get a new one because then they're like going to, oh, I'll lose my food stamps or something. Yeah. You know what? That's not, again, you, framing it all from it's the people's fault. Like they're disencouraged because their benefit went down and like, it's their fault. No, the federal poverty line's fucked up. That's the problem. It's not the people's fault. How the fuck are you going to blame the mouse for going to the easiest path to the cheese? That doesn't even make any sense. You need to rebuild the maze. And that's what we're talking about. The only thing that these people talk about is they want to like, re like move the walls around on the maze and just be like, oh, well, here's a different path, even though it's just as long and you're still going to get the same tiny little unsatisfying piece of cheese at the end. Uh, that's, that's real Keynesian economics. Uh, ridiculous. So back to that metaphor I referred to earlier. Providing a safety net is like using a leaky bucket to redistribute water among people with differing amounts. Bringing the water to the thirstiest is noble, but it's also costly because water's lost in transit. I, I don't even understand. So he's literally saying social spending programs are bad because regardless of the form they take, right? Pre, uh, free free pre-K. Uh, he would probably say that for the enhanced unemployment benefits that happened, all kinds of shit, right? Um, it's bad because like water is lost in the pro pro process. Okay, so in his analogy, in his metaphor here that he's pulling from this guy's book, water is money. Okay, money's lost in the process. Yeah, money, money's lost in every process that in a distributive process. You know how money isn't lost? The only way it's not lost, this is gonna blow your mind when you just give people money which none of you people agree with. You all have a huge fucking problem with universal basic income. So again, it's like, well, what is, again, what are you arguing for here? He's not actually arguing for anything. He's just saying, well, we should just keep shit the same. That's literally what he's saying. Um, so yeah, let's continue to finish this up. He said, and this was this, which brings me back to Western Europe. Compared to the United States, GDP per person in 2019 was 14% lower than in Germany, 24% lower in France and 24, 26% uh, lower in the United Kingdom. Okay, but that doesn't even, who cares? Who cares? This is these people's insane fixation. And this is why I always dunk on economists, right? Because they study economics as a field, as if it's like a thing separate from people. It's just like, like, it's just a science, right? Like, it's just, it's like physics. Like, okay, I need to go to space. I'm going to build a rocket ship. Here's all the mathematical equations to build a rocket ship. 
this is going to complete this one task. Economies don't aren't don't work that way. You don't build an economy. There is no task for an economy in capitalism other than to grow. The, I mean, that's literally the the entire point of capitalism, right? It's never ending growth, right? That's like the base theory of it. So if that's what your goal is, but here's the thing, buddy, all the rest of us normal people don't think that that's what the goal of an economy is. The goal of an economy is to make money uh, prosperously within a domestic situation, within a country so that we can all live good lives. It's not for your fucking GDP comparison to Germany and France because GDP does not correlate to quality of life. That's by definition true because we have the highest GDP have for a long fucking time. And the American quality, like light quality of life is extremely lower compared to almost every European country. So how do you explain that? They would blame it on other things like corruption, lobbying, all this other shit. And it's like, no, but this is the root cause right here. Your frame, your frame of mind. He he thinks GDP per person is a, is a, is a direct correlation to how much room there is in economy for a social safety net. And he's saying it as if that's a bad thing. Like, that, oh, well, their GDP is much lower per person than us. It literally doesn't even make any sense. doesn't make any sense. So he continues, economists disagree about why European nations are less prosperous than the United States. But a leading hypothesis advanced by Edward Prescott, a Nobel laureate in 2003, is that Europeans work less than Americans because they face higher taxes to finance a more generous social safety net. Now, it's really funny that this guy is referring to some... First off, that first uh, quote he read, that metaphor about the leaky bucket, he went all the way back to a guy who wrote a book in 1975 that he probably read when he was like 30 or something. This guy's mad old. Uh, not that young. He was probably in college, to be fair. Now he's referring to a 2003 Nobel laureate that said, Europeans work less than Americans because they face higher taxes, so they don't work as much. No, that's not why. They, they work less than Americans. The majority... Uh, not, I shouldn't say the majority... Germany, for example, Italy, two of uh, very large manufacturing uh, uh, powerhouses in Europe, they have close to the same or very close to the same productivity, their manufacturing basis, their manufacturing uh, industry, rather, in country has the same, if not slightly less productivity compared to America, even though we work um, uh, dozens of times percent more hours than they do. In our manufacturing. Now, why do you think that is? Now, if he actually wanted to be, uh, you know, actually look into this, because there's been tons of articles and studies and all kinds of shit done on this for literally a decade now. Um, I forget the name of the, um, what the hell is the guy's name? The guy who did Fahrenheit 9-11. Uh, Michael Moore just did a whole fucking movie on this shit. Uh, it came out like six years ago. I'm blanking on it. I could probably Google it right now, but I'm not going to, I'm going to throw myself off. But there's, People have studied this. The reason that <laughs> uh, they don't work as much is because they don't need to for their level of productivity. You know, uh, Andrew Yang, a ton of these, the guy, Gary Vee, the guy who me and fucking Patter were dunking on last week. Uh, even he talks about it. Even that fucking huckster. All these financial people, they talk about it all the time. Like, yeah, we're just uh, people that go on Rogan. Rogan talks about it. We literally just, it's make work in America. A ton of the shit that we do, like jobs, are meaningless jobs. It's literally just for the, the sake of to keep people working, you know? And Europe does a lot less of that than we do. That's why. That's why they work less. They don't need to work 60 hours a week because they know, oh, we can just hire more people in this factory instead of hiring, uh, you know, uh, eight people to do the same job that 
Americans have 16 doing, or I'm sorry, uh, have eight doing, and they have 16. And the reason for that is because American corporations, it is cheaper for them to pay uh, eight individuals way more money to do the same work that it actually would require from an ergonomic standpoint, from a healthy standpoint, 16 workers to do just working like 30 hours a week like a lot of Europeans do. Because in America, those corporations have to pay healthcare insurance premiums. That's why. There's an extra cost for them. So for, for them, it's no longer in the equation of how much am I going to burn my workers out? How much efficiency am I getting out of each person per hour worked? They don't care about that anymore. Because at the end of the day, the cost that it's a, it's a built-in cost for labor, the way that they look at it, but it is that the cost of insuring workers. Europe doesn't have that problem. Europe, most uh, the overwhelming majority of European countries do not have that problem. Okay, they have single payer, and many of them have. Uh, you know, the UK has the NHS. The fucking government owns the goddamn medical system, the infrastructure of it. So they don't have that problem. So again, wildly disingenuous. But you know, I just. I wanted to just give some of this, uh, this guy's just insane talking points. We'll finish up with the last paragraph here. Uh, he, he closes it off with, but the entire $3.5 trillion package is just too big and too risky. The wiser course is to take more incremental steps rather than try to remake the economy in one fell swoop. Okay, guys. So, I mean, there you have it. Another just complete straw man he's building to just clap with his little editorial his opinion new york times opinion page bat he built up and just blow blast that straw man away i hope he feels good because literally none of this is remaking the economy what he just talked about none of it is remaking the economy this is remaking how we do spending social spending what he's saying he's making it seem as if the economy at large like this bill like which it would have, to be fair, if it didn't get stripped of it all, like green subsidies and, uh, you know, all the money Biden had put towards, like, putting charging stations on highways, all the limits, all the uh, the extra funding for electronic vehicles, all, all that shit got pulled out. Remaking what economy? All we're talking about is spending it in a more equitable way because income inequality is wildly out of control in this country. You know, and he, it's too big, too risky. We should just take incremental steps. Bro, we just did 20 years of incremental steps. What do you think Obama did? What do you think Trump did? Trump didn't do anything. What are we talking about here? Ridiculous. Let's just do more of the same shit that led us to crash after crash every 10 years, like fucking clockwork, whether it's from coronavirus or housing market crash, anything. Until these people realize, and this guy never will because he's like 60 now and he's been, this is like his whole career, prestige, everything is built up around this. He will never admit it. But until he, you know, folks like him who are coming into this field, who want to study hard economics and then act as if they're legit, not legitimate, but they're authority figures when they're, when we're talking about political economics around spending, because notice there, he didn't, he didn't bring up any, there was no scientific, um, evaluation of the economics there. There was no mathematical, uh, computation of the economics there. He approached that whole article from a political lens, which is why I feel comfortable talking about it because that's my fucking wheelhouse. He tried to come in here and drop all of these political talking points without using what where his authority actually would be rooted in, okay? And, you know, until these folks realize this, it's like, no, you, 
that that's that is not what we're talking about here. They all know it. This is literally just so you know your fucking libertarian uncle or just uh you know anyone on Fox can be like, oh look, we got a lib from Harvard in the New York Times dunking on Biden shit. That's literally all this is for. That's that's literally all this is for. So, you know, there we go. Like I said, you got to know what they're talking about, and I think that that's important because that man is very revered in economics. So. Uh, you know, why, why doesn't the New York Times run a Richard Wolf article? I'm curious. Why not? You know, a pro uh, reconciliation bill article. But all right, here we go. We're going to close this up here with uh, the breaking news that I wrote in the show notes and mentioned in the beginning. Um, what we had here was I was just about to go live and uh, I saw this come across my timeline and it is important. Now, an FDA panel, uh, the FDA was convening to... Uh, give their recommendations on authorization for Pfizer booster shots, only for Pfizer, not for Moderna yet. I believe, yeah, it was just Pfizer. Um, now, a scientific, this is from the New York Times, a scientific advisory committee uh, to the Food and Drug Administration on Friday recommended authorizing a booster shot for recipients of the Pfizer uh, coronavirus vaccine for those who are 65 years or older or at high risk of severe COVID. Now, that was the second part. When it broke, it initially, the story was around this part, which is what I want to highlight, which is, quote, the move came after the panel overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly recommended against approving a Pfizer booster for people 16 and over. The committee voted 16 to 2 against the broader recommendation after an intense day-long public discussion on whether booster shots are necessary and if so, for whom. Now, the Biden administration had been hoping the FDA and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would approve a third shot of the Pfizer vaccine in time to begin rolling out boosters for Pfizer recipients next week. So the reason they're mentioning that is because if you guys forgot, like, I think it was two weeks ago, Um, I think it was two weeks ago. Biden said, oh, we're going to go, I think it was two or three weeks ago. He was like, oh, we're going to, by September, I forget the arbitrary date he said. It was supposed to be like next week, the 20-something. He was like, oh, yeah, we're going to have that approved. Now, it caused a huge fucking rift in the FDA um, and some people in the CDC, but mostly in the FDA. Um, now, that's what, in that article, they, I don't think they referred to it yet, but right after Biden announced that, there had already been... Uh, prior to Biden announcing that, there had already been a ton of science percolating. I believe it was, there was a study out of Israel um, where they were showing very early, it was the first big study, like from a countrywide data that showed very early that vaccine efficacy was waning for uh, contraction of the disease, right? Not for hospitalization, not for death, but for contraction of the coronavirus, right? Uh, Israel had some decent data on that. Now, Israel, Is uh, Israeli scientists started talking about, oh, maybe we need to do boosters, um, it's sort of, it got into the zeitgeist. It started mixing around, uh, you know, the, the water cooler, so to speak, amongst a lot of scientific groups worldwide. The World Health Organization came out very strong because they're looking at it in what my opinion is the correct perspective of an overall um, pandemic uh, situation rather than worrying about just, oh, I'm this one country and I want to do what's best for my people. No, the World Health Organization was like, we shouldn't, even if it is effective for staving off contraction of the disease, we still should be focusing on delivering extra shots beyond the people who are fully vaccinated, right? At the time, what the data said, what, you know, the science was saying is fully vaccinated for a normal, healthy person that's 16 and up is two shots of the Moderna or Pfizer and one shot of the uh, Johnson & Johnson. They were like, you need to send that shit to other countries. Do the math, figure out so we can uh, handle the exponential growth of all this. Now, so Biden came right out and said it. Uh, no, we're just going to do them before he even had approval from the FDA's uh, advisory board here. Now, 
after he announced that, the FDA had two resignations of Marion Gruber and Philip Krauss. Marion Gruber was the director of the FDA's Office of Vaccines Research and Review. And then it was her deputy. So literally the top two people in charge of the FDA's vaccine research and review announced their resignations. Uh, one, uh, they're going to leave in October and November, respectively. So right there, like that should have set off a, a gigantic alarm bell for Democrats in general. Like, I get it. Biden's kind of stepped in it on a few different things. But, you know, this is something where it's like, wait, we're not just this isn't just about political motivations anymore. This isn't just about, you know, people with our insane vaccine debate within our country and, you know, people wanting to get folks vaccinated, some people not wanting to, the fights between people being mandated at certain jobs, having to do all that, all that noise can be put to the side for a second because these FDA guys are looking at it from the same perspective as the World Health Organization, in my opinion. You know what I mean? They're like, well, we don't even, if the trade-off isn't looking like it's going to be that significant, you know what I mean? Like if, they're saying that the data isn't necessarily there, that it's going to booster shots are going to stop infection still, even amongst healthy people, 16 and up. So until you have a significant data size showing that, oh, people are in that age group, healthy people are dying in larger rates again, then why would you go ahead and use more shots for those same people? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, uh, now, it continues, although the FDA is not obliged to follow its advisory committee's recommendations, it typically does. The agency will likely make a decision by early next week. The votes came out after a sharp debate in which many of the panel's independent experts, including infectious disease doctors and statisticians, challenged whether the data justified extra shots for so much of the population when the vaccines still appear to offer robust protection against COVID-19 and hospitalization, um, at least in the United States. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Michaela, or I'm sorry, Michael G. Carrillo says, quote, it's unclear that everyone needs to be boosted other than a small subset of the population that clearly would be at high risk for serious disease. The article continues, the negative vote was the latest in a series of setbacks for President Biden's booster plan since he first announced it a month ago. Mr. Biden said at the time that he wanted most adults who had gotten a second Pfizer or Moderna vaccine in the last eight months to start receiving booster shots the week of September 20th. All right, so there we go. I hadn't even read this article yet, guys. It was breaking. It continues both, uh, but two weeks after his announcement, leaders of the FDA and the CDC told the White House that it would be impossible to authorize booster shots for recipients of the Moderna vaccine that soon. It is now unclear whether extra injections will be offered to Pfizer recipients, and if so, how many and how old. In a remarkable public display of internal dissension, two FDA scientists co-authored a medical journal article earlier this week, arguing that there was no credible evidence yet in support of booster shots for the general population. Those officials who were leaving the agency this fall joined outside experts and other federal health officials who cast doubt at the meeting on whether Pfizer's request should be approved. So this is important, guys, because... Before this panel convened, right, the only data we had, like, from large studies was from Israel. And then we had Pfizer who was pushing it, obviously, right? Like, Pfizer was like, yeah, we, we should do it, baby. Let's go. Fire it up. Yeah, I don't trust any pharma companies, just their data. And we did a lot of that early on, right? With, with, when we did this emergency medical authorization, um, we did a ton of that. We trusted a lot of their numbers. And then, to be fair... Some of their numbers ended up being different from what the live data was months after their studies they conducted because we had mutations, right? We had the wild version of Corona, the Corona A, whatever you want to call it, the first uh, outbreak in this country, and then Delta came, right? And there's all these other variants that might be coming on the pike, but, you know, we'll get to that when we get to it. But 
that's my issue, right? The the Pfizer request that they were, uh, you know, whatever data set they were basing it off of, A, it might not even, who knows what they're using? I don't know. Uh, obviously, the FDA looked at it and said that, you know, 16 out of 18 people, including the two top dudes uh, in, in this organization, this review board, were like, no. So it brings to question, right? Like, where are we going with this? Where are we going with this? Because the case has been built so much now at this point for either lifting intellectual property uh, rights from these companies so that it can be made in other parts of the world, these mRNA vaccines. If you think that that's actually going to be the key to stopping this pandemic, that is the only thing that should be on anyone's mind right now. And for some reason, a, a lot of liberals are getting sucked into this, you know, this this, this twisted, tilted worldview, man. And I mean it. And it's not just liberals. There's people on the, you know, there's Republicans who are vaccinated and shit too. And it's sort of like a, um, it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you get your first two shots, you know, I'm vaccinated, right? Like you get your first two shots and then it's like, oh, well you already had buy-in. So like you need to get the booster. Um, which, you know, if there's actual like data that shows it, then yeah, I might consider it. But like right now, no, I feel like I, I got it. Okay. But there's a lot of people who are like, you know, it's getting to the point where it's like some self-fulfilling prophecy now where it's like, well, Biden said it and there's, they'll, they'll take some tiny subset of data, like some little, you know, uh, uh, some little bit of confirmation of bias that, that like supports their story. Meanwhile, there's like literally entire org, the FDA, the world health organization, you know, the CDC obviously hasn't weighed in yet. Um, you know, other countries saying like, yeah, no, we're not doing boosters. And now, uh, my co-host had her just text me the other day. I didn't read the story. Uh, yesterday that the uk is doing booster shots now i don't know what parameters around if it's just for immunocompromised people old people i get that if that's the case but the fact that again i'm highlighting it because it's this issue of miscommunication if you want to call it that i would call it jumping the gun here biden should have never announced that he should have never said that because now what we have is his own scientists Going against what he said, his administration came out and said, we have the data that supports this. We're confident that this is going to happen in the next four weeks. It's probably not going to happen now. So again, what we're talking about here is just, it's constant peeling away of the credibility of the executive playing such a huge role in policy in this regard, in health policy. And, you know, it's really frustrating in my opinion uh, you know, from where I'm coming from that, like Congress plays very little role in this. The exec, I, I, maybe that's what the real problem is here because the executive branch is inherently going to politicize this. You know what I mean? Because it's on them. You know, this whole pandemic, it happened with Trump, his poll numbers, Biden's feeling it right now. Y you know, he jumped the gun here and it makes sense why he did, because he probably had a little bit of positive data and was like, Hey, you know what? I'm going to, and I even heard a white house spokesperson say this. They were like, well, you know what? We wanted to get ahead of it in case it did get approved. And it's like, okay, but the problem is now you already have uh, an article I read last week. You already have over a million Americans who aren't immunocompromised who got booster shots. Now, to be fair, a ton of these vaccines are probably just going to get fucking wasted anyway if we don't start sending them to other third world countries. A ton of them are probably going to get fucking wasted because now if you got the FDA and uh, the, the Pfizer doesn't get approved and Moderna doesn't either for people who aren't immunocompromised or old, they're probably just going to fucking sit here and rot because like what, what, what are, what's going to be done with them? Because in my opinion, we're plateauing. 
we're hitting a point where the majority of people who are going to be vaccinated are by now. You might get a little bit of pressure from, you know, there's people who are being threatened with their jobs right now. There's some people who are going to probably be making decisions that they don't want to that are going to get, you know, pushed into doing it. And I'm sure there's a tiny slice of people who just haven't gotten around to it yet or were waiting or whatever. Sure, you're going to catch some more people. But for the most part, you know, I don't see us getting like another 10% boost before winter. You know, I, uh, uh, per, of Americans, another 10% percentage. I, I don't see that happening. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know, man, we'll see where we're at with this. But again, um, I know that I keep diving into these and I get, I do get worked up and I do get upset because it's like, well, wh wh how, why can't we, why can't anyone just level, like just be real with the American people for once and try to gain some of that trust back. And honestly, it might be too late. It might be too late because there's been so many jump the gun or just bad, bad information given that was pretty quickly proven to not be on like untrue, but just like a half truth or just a complete omission. You know what I mean? And like, here we go again. We're, we're, we're in a second wave, man. And we're still playing fucking games with this shit. I just, I don't understand it. Uh, I really don't because there isn't, you're going to play, you're going to play politics with this shit to the point where it really isn't going to matter who, uh, wins the midterms or what your approval rating is around that time, or whether you're going to win your next election Democrats or any of that. Like if this shit just keeps spiraling out of control, I haven't seen any signs that it's going to stop. Why would it? We're having an, an almost, um, we're having an almost two-thirds as powerful wave in many states. This is their most powerful, but overall as a country, we're having a almost as powerful wave as the first one with how many people are vaccinated right now. That should be concerning. You don't know. No one knows what variants or mutations are going to come down the pike. They can't tell you that. So why wouldn't you be playing this conservatively right now? How have we not learned this lesson? especially for America, like you watched a bunch of your Western allies play fast and loose with shit like this and get popped and get burned. So when is that going to start happening? When is this shift going to happen? You know what I mean? I understand it. I get it. You're under assault. People with misinformation, a lot of the right wings just completely fucking off and not cooperating. You got fucking, what's his name? Uh, DeSantis in Florida, just going ballistic, talking about finding people who are trying to require vaccinations um, you know, even for even like federal stuff, all kind of shit. There's craziness going on all over the place. The guy won't let people wear masks weirdly. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of crazy shit going on. I understand that you feel like you have to push back strongly in the opposite direction with your positive propaganda. I get that. But at the same time, you can't keep doing these gun jump, jumping these guns this way because it whittles away at your credibility over time. And that is, that's what, you, that ultimately is where you're going to pay the ultimate price when it comes to the polls, um, when it comes to the total number of dead Americans, all this other shit. This is, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure in the future with this. It might not be direct. It might not be right now, but you know, it's not good, man. It's not good. But, um, yeah, I ranted and raved long enough, guys. Uh, that's all I got for you today. Solid hour. Um, like I said before, oh, let me get my video up. Make sure I'm, uh, yep. We got swag. We got swag. It's going to be all getting ordered and stuff. Uh, if you guys like it, hit the page with a like, you know, comment. Let me know that uh, you might be interested. And I will see you guys next time. Peace.